Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. The way that Canadian media play out, it's a endless hockey game between the Canadian Habs and the Maple Leafs, <laughs> and people of color in Quebec are basically the are we are we are the puck. We're not even players; we are the puck, and it's just two different kind of white people, you know, trying to argue which kind of white people is the best. And personally, I'm not interested in that debate. But which kind of white person is the best? We'll save that debate for a later episode. Today, I have to reckon with the painful accuracy of the analogy that you just heard. But I can't pretend that it's news to me. I know that conversations about racism held between two white guys can be painful. Perhaps as painful as this podcast's coverage to date of Quebec media. Let's uh, reach into the mailbag. Hi, Jesse. I noticed you don't talk much about what's going on in the Quebec media landscape on the show. Hi, Jesse. I do think that a great way forward for Canada Land would be to have more Quebec coverage or awareness. Dear Jesse, as a Quebecer, I noticed a lack of Quebec coverage, even when Quebec was an integral part of the story. You shouldn't call it Canada Land until you can include all parts of Canada in it and stop treating Quebecers as if they're some sort of scary object. I think you were better than that. There's more. Jesse, I think your show could benefit from speaking to journalists who are either currently working in Quebec or have lived in Quebec and who can speak and read French. Hi, Canada Land. It makes me sad that even Canada Land can't do the coverage of Quebec affairs properly. Which begs the question, why can't Anglos get Quebec coverage right? Right. 
You know, the problem with blind spots is that they're in your blind spot, but I want to do better and, and not in a kind of a hangdog, I'll try to be better kind of a way, but in the sense that if we can do better, if we can crack the two solitudes, there's good shit there. The Quebec media scene is vibrant and feverish and lurid. This show would be so much better if we could do that well. And if we could do that now, I mean, how is me too playing out in Quebec? Over the summer, this list was going around of Quebec men accused of misconduct. It was a long list filled with names of famous people who I have never heard of. And how is Black Lives Matter playing out with people who are known for taking to the streets in protest, even without a global movement motivating them to do so? How is anti-racism playing out in a province where a xenophobic anti-immigrant media figure like newspaper columnist Richard Martineau wields more power and influence than any columnist in English Canada. I'd like to know. And with tons of gratitude to the dudes who have talked to me about Quebec in the past, to Patrick Legacy and Martin Patrick Quinn and Les Perot, I think we can do better. Today, I'm going to talk to the woman whose voice you heard at the beginning of today's episode. Columnist, journalist, and anthropologist, Emily Nicolas. Emily writes for Le Devoir and will be teaching a class on Black Lives Matter and the media at the University of Toronto this winter. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Kiefer Waite, Melinda Brickwood, Carrie Cullen, Jyoti Solanke-Davey, Scott Benham, Carlisle, Jocelyn Wainwright, and Hayden Jones. Hi, my name is Hayden Jones, and I'm a software developer in Toronto, Canada. I support Canada Land because they produce good journalism in a format I like, podcasts. And I don't want to say that I like Jesse Brown, but I don't not like him. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. 
help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. Hi, Emily. Hi. I have been trying to comprehend the uh, the impact of like the convergence of Me Too mm-hmm. and Black Lives Matter and what's happening with the critique of policing and the protests against policing and what's happening as a result in the media and all of that stuff as it applies to Quebec. And my mind boggles and I'm really curious to understand it. My problem is I have been trying to understand it through conversations with white Anglo men. So I'm really glad to be speaking with you right now. <laughs> yeah, you're you're far off. Uh, I mean, some white Anglo men get get it because they get their information uh, locally, but uh, it's hard to uh, have an understanding of what's been going on, especially if it's only fo- focusing with uh, what's been happening in English speaking media. There's always a bubble, I find, that is hard to translate sometimes myself, even as someone who kind of works on both sides. There's a very different news cycle on, on, on in both in French and English in this country. It's almost like we have two countries in one. So, so yeah, it makes it hard to follow sometimes. So yeah, an old story of two solitudes, except these are global movements. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And it's happening the same thing, you know, when you're talking about Black Lives Matter, for example, in France or uh, in Latin America as well, it kind of follows its own beat. And sometimes I feel as North American, we don't necessarily realize that the, you know, the ways of U.S. is not necessarily the ways of the world. And there are distinct conversations going on. If you were like, I mean, we don't hang out at airport bars anymore, but if you were at an airport bar speaking to an American uh, just trying to introduce them to the idea like this is happening in Quebec, but it's happening very differently. How would you describe that? In the late 80s, uh, Anthony Griffith was killed uh, in Montreal. He was a black man killed by the Montreal police. Uh, and in many ways, that was the start of police brutality protests in Montreal and the kind of scale and uh, impact that we've seen elsewhere in North America. Uh, Mercedes Francois as well, who was killed in 91. Uh, so there's a whole generation who's been doing that uh, way before you know, the in its own way, independently from the U.S., uh, before the Black Lives Matter hashtag, just like there were protests as well elsewhere in Canada and the U.S. as well, before the Black Lives Matter movement per se. In 28, uh, Frézy Villanueva, who is a young immigrant from uh, Honduras, he was 18 years old, was killed by the police in Montreal North, which is a uh, borough of Montreal uh, that is... Um, has been marginalized for a very long time. This is where you have also a very uh, large p- part of the black population in the city. And and when Fredzi was killed, this is very much when, you know, Fredzi became a symbol in the city. And a lot of the protests around police brutality very much rallied around 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 Freddy. You had also riots that happened then. It's kind of our you know ninety one LA kind of movement. It, this is this is what happened with Freddy Villanueva in, in Montreal North. And once again, this movement is not called Black Lives Matter, right? And so you have those conversations going on, and they're very happening at their kind of own pace with the the, the beats of what's happening locally. And uh, some of that is framed in a way that's similar to what you have uh, elsewhere in North America. 
America, but some of it is also the, the way that people organize is distinct. Um, because, for example, Fredy uh, Villanueva, although most of the organizers around with uh, people who rallied around this figure were were black, uh, but Fredy himself, he's Latino and he's not black, right? So it's also a movement in Quebec that's definitely focused on on anti black racism, but also includes. Uh, you know, people who are uh, who are not black but are also racialized and victims of police brutality. So, yeah, the, the movement is just slightly has a slightly different uh, beat and color. And so, with the latest killings that have been happening, people have been, of course, trying to join those movements. But it's important when we do that also not to, I guess, erase the the local history of it, uh, because when you do that you also erase a local, I guess, wisdom of how to make those issues visible in the local media. Uh, Quebec has its own, you know, mindset, its own history. And if you just apply, I guess, things the way they're being said in the U.S., you just repeat them in French, it doesn't necessarily work that well. And so it's very important as well to kind of adapt your message. When I think about Quebec, I definitely think about a culture where Protest on the streets is a big part of the culture and the protests, maybe this is unfair, but I think of them as the, the uh, propensity for them to become physical uh, seems higher in youth protests I associate with Quebec. But I also think of racism specifically in Quebec differently than I do in other parts of Canada. Is Quebec more racist than the rest of Canada or is it just uh, a different flavor? Well, there's a lot of things in what you just said. Uh, in terms of the protests, uh, I don't know if there's more violent, but there's just more protests in general, right? And we've seen, a, for example, the student movement in 2012. It's something that it's, it's I don't know more, it's Black Lives Matter, but it's also actually white young people who also protest a lot. Um, so that's the first part. The, the second part, uh, is Quebec more racist? Uh, I think, uh, it's very hard to define racism just like that. So it very much depends on what you're talking about. But one thing for sure is that every nation, every culture has racism and then that's kind of universal. And then when you look at each context, it just plays out a little bit differently. There's like a little local flavor, a little twist on it. In Canadian racism in general, both in Ontario and Quebec, there's a lot of denial of it being a local reality. And that's something that both Toronto and Montreal share, you know, always having to explain that systemic racism is not just an American thing. That's something that all Canadians uh, who uh, have grown up with a certain narrative of what Canada is struggle to understand that the fact that, you know, the the, the narrative of Canada being this kind of la-la land uh, is very far from the truth, both when it comes to anti-Black racism and uh, Indigenous rights. Uh, there's been a lot of a very dark history uh, on those two aspects since the very founding of this country. And here, for example, in Quebec, there's a very stark uh, erasure of the history of slavery, uh, which took place, you know, in New France uh, since the very beginning of the colony. And most people are not taught about that in school at all. And so most people end up not knowing that slavery is, a, is actually not only a Canadian thing, but a French-Canadian thing as well. And so because there is this absence of knowledge, it's very hard to have those, those conversations. Uh, but moreover, I'd say what makes it very difficult is that people are 
very comfortable actually talking about racism when it comes to racism against French Canadian, right? And so uh, there is a history of discrimination and there is a history of inequalities between French and English uh, white settlers in this country. And because there is a truth to that, French settlers happen to just talk about that aspect of their history, but also fail to kind of see how this history of, you know, catching up in the 60s and the 70s where French Canadians had their kind of economic boom and started to reduce this this gap. Well, that catching up happened at the expense of Indigenous people in Northern Quebec, for sure, uh, who, you know, were on the receiving end of the dams and the Hydro-Quebec and all the things that are, you know, the flagship of the Quiet Revolution movement. Uh, but it also happened at the expense of Newer immigrant population who uh, were not giving the same opportunities of, as French Canadians. And so it's kind of th- this country having so many l- different layers of injustice and colonization. And everybody, I think it's a general human tendency to want to focus in your personal narrative on the things that makes you look good or makes you look like, you know, the hero of the story and doesn't make you don't want to insist as much on on the aspects of it that makes you the bad guy, right? And so I think in French Canadian culture, people insist on the parts where they were wronged historically, but there's very little awareness still of how actually, although you might have been discriminated against in some ways, you are also white and you are also dominant in North America in other ways as well. And so as a black woman in Quebec, it's, uh, you're always trying to fight, uh, fight this, this kind of narratives. And so, uh, unless I'd say, for, for example, in a city like Toronto, you have to argue, uh, with white people that they're actually white and that, that they're actually dominant. Uh, that is not something that you can take as a given. And that's something that anti-racist uh, movements have to, you know, take a lot of airtime to actually, you know, help unpack the history of French Canada and trying to see, yes, you live this and this and that, but also anti-Black racism is a local reality uh, and y- you live on stolen land. And those two things can be true at the same time. And that's a... Uh, that's a hard thing for a lot of people to wrap their their head around, for sure. Yeah, especially people who consider themselves oppressed. I mean, there's a a, a history, I guess, of claiming a certain fealty or similarity. And, you know, the, the book by Pierre Valliere that got Wendy Mesley in so much trouble for citing, and just so people comprehend, I'll say the book title is White N-Words of America, where the French-Canadian cause was, the Quebecois cause was equated with the black American cause, but there's a certain entitlement in thinking that that's not seeing the distinctions and and maybe that lives to this day when you've got a society where those who, I guess, define themselves by freeing themselves from the oppression from the church or oppression from English Canada uh, are, are, are themselves a dominant people in a culture where so many other people live. Yeah. You know, Pierre Vallière's book, it's hard to translate, right? Uh, Negre Blanc d'Amérique, because Negre can be more, can uh, mean more Negroes and, and Negre. It depends on, uh, it depends on the context. Uh, but basically, uh, Pierre Vallière himself was this, this guy that had a, a very, um, 
very critical view, basically, of British imperialist capitalism, uh, the way that it played out in Montreal. And sometimes we forget in Toronto, but actually Montreal was a metropolis of, of, of the Canadian economy until the 70s. And so what was happening in the popular neighborhoods of Montreal was very much representative of industrialization in Canada in general in that period. And um, while he was kind of trying to make weird uh, metaphors in association with uh, African-Americans. It's interesting also how in his later essays, he kind of recognized that some of that was a mistake. And there's very interesting quotes of him saying that if uh, Quebecois nationalism continues on the path that it's on, or if people are not careful, uh, it can metaphorph into... Uh, something that's more about, you know, xenophobia and ethnic nationalism. It's really interesting how now you have people who are basically ethnic nationalists in many ways, who are now trying to defend the right to quote Pierre Vallière, while Pierre Vallière himself would have probably said, because he was a leftist revolutionary in some ways, although that title was definitely a mistake. And so he would probably be against those guys today, the kind of conservative nationalists that we have that has become so mainstream. The final piece of this that we haven't got to yet is sexism. And I mean, I think about a generation who, for them, you know, feminism and, and uh, issues of sex and gender, I think had a lot to do with casting them, their freedom from the church and expressing themselves sexually. Yes. And now it's it's uh, a younger generation has some sort of finer points about uh, equality and abuse. And there's seems to be, from, from my perspective over here, just an absolute defiance, a reactionary refusal to hear this. And, and uh, I don't think that people who consume English language media in Canada fully appreciate the cultural role of Richard Martineau and other columnists in, in Quebec. I wonder if you can talk a little bit just about how your messages are received, how that conversation is playing out, and, and those kinds of disparities in power and clout in the, in the media sphere. Well, um, I'm just gonna go back into history for a bit because I think that's the piece that's missing. When people are not understanding what's going on in Quebec, I think it's because there's a gap in terms of the social history of the place. And so when you're saying only the things at the surface and not what's behind it, it's hard, uh, to figure it out. But yes, a lot of the social movements, basically in that generation was very much uh, against a very conservative version of the Catholic Church that had uh, been able to take hold uh, in Quebec. And it's also important to understand that the church was only so strong uh, because of the context of British imperialism, uh, where you don't necessarily have uh, the state to protect your culture. Uh, then the, the church kind of came in as as being the unofficial state representative of French Canadians in some ways, especially during uh, the late 19th century in the beginning of the 20th century with industrialization people were leaving uh you know rural quebec where basically being a very homogeneous village you know trapped to french and and religion was not really a thing but moving to cities or moving to uh, new england in the u.s uh, the church started to be to crack down basically and trying to be a, a lot more conservative and for example the generation of my grandmother because i'm mixed right my father's from haiti and my mother's french canadian that generation it was 
was not uncommon to have families of 10, 14 children because women were told that uh, it was against uh, the will of God to stop having children, even though you could risk uh, dying in child labor, things like that. And so when you understand the feminist movement in Quebec as very much taking a stand against uh, what the Catholic Church was doing at, at, at the time, you also understand a little bit better uh some of the arguments that are being thrown around in terms of secularism and Islamophobia and all of that. You basically have French Canadian historical experience of religion being something that means every woman on earth is supposed to have the same religion, the, the same relationship with religion, basically. So this is how you have people who in the sixties and the seventies actually were identifying on the left, were identifying as feminists. And then, you know, back for, uh, fast forward a couple of decades, um, you have people who don't come from the same kind of background or people in my generation who don't remember that kind of Catholic church, who are just, you know, wanting women to be able to wear whatever they want to wear and not have uh, either the state or the church actually tell them what to do. And there's this absolute disconnect uh, between people who cannot phantom that it's possible for other women to have a different relationship to religion than the one they had and the one they remember their mothers having, for example. And so secularism the conversation around secularism and their history of Quebec are absolutely interrelated. That is not a way to excuse the kind of uh, the, the kind of rhetoric that's been out there since the, the beginning of the, the, the 2000. But also, if we want to fight what that the Bill 21, for example, we, we really need to understand where some of that uh, is coming from, uh, because you cannot fight in what you don't understand is something that I strongly believe. And thinking of Bill uh, 21, you know, this ban on uh, against religious head coverings for government workers and uh, against the niqab, against the burqa, and then, you know, the hypocrisy of it when we enter the pandemic. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know. Uh, how how you know bans on face coverings work right now? Yes, no, they don't work for sure. So it's like a dogmatic secularism. It's, it's like secularism take, taken to an extreme, like a, an extreme ideology of anti religiosity. Yes, and that's a very French thing as well. Uh, you know, because the when we talk about the Quiet Revolution, it's it's in contrast with uh, the very uh, violent revolution that was the French Revolution that basically beheaded the church, uh, the all the the bishops and whatnot in France and. And so, um, and, and in France, there is a strong intellectual tradition of people who are not only atheists, but believe basically that because they are atheists, they are superior and that people who believe in, believe in religions are, are, are backward, are people who are still in the Middle Ages, people who live in the dark and that, um, you know, being an atheist is, is having shed, uh, the kind of barbarian belief or, you know, I'm obviously paraphrasing, uh, that, that, that people used to have in, in, uh, in backward culture basically. And so that's a very strong intellectual French tradition. And there's a lot of uh, Quebecois intellectual who either study in France or are in connection with that with that movement. And so you do have a laïcité movement in Quebec that is not only uh, for, you know, separation of church and state, which is a goal that everybody, of course, I think wants that, wants the state to be able to do and uh, take, make decisions that independently from the influence of uh, the church. That's a very good thing. But there's also the other kind of laicity, which is very much about um, atheism as the state religion and every other religion not being equal, but actually being inferior. And there's a confusion in between those things. And that's definitely also shaping up the debate. And all of that being misunderstood is right now weaponized as something that 
is against basically the rights of Muslim women, and that's very wrong. Um, but once again, if we want to fight that, we need to understand what what people are actually saying. It's a culture that like t- 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 seems to be so defined by defiance to what the English speaking world wants of it. But now we have this conflict where the defiance is taking on, we will defiantly cling to blackface because it means something different here and you can't tell us uh, how to laugh and what's funny and you don't know our traditions. Or a defiance, uh, artistic defiance of Robert Lepage saying, uh, no, this, this pl- I have a right to, to do this slave play and I won't be told um, w- what I can and can't express as, as an artist. And I think just to have English Canada or America uh, asserting what is appropriate or inappropriate in French Canada is just going to be defied, even when it comes at the expense of uh, and, and and harms people within Quebec. Right. I I would I would not. I mean, when you say it's, it's a culture defined by defiance, I would I would not agree with that in the sense that. I don't know. It's just the anthropologist side of me. It's like you cannot define cultures with a word like that. And I don't think that's fair. Although I do understand what you mean in the sense that uh, because the pressure of assimilations on French Canadians were so strong, there is this kind of now knee-jerk reflect whenever whenever something is said in English to kind of mm-hmm. be like, no, we're not English, so we're not for that concept. And so that, that makes sometimes conversations for more difficult. For example, myself and others in 2016, we started a campaign to have uh, the Quebec government uh, do, you know, re- acknowledge that systemic racism is a thing and, and inquire into the ways in which it plays out uh, in the police, in the education system and healthcare and all the things that are the provincial government is responsible for. And um, a lot of the backlash that we've had for that campaign is people saying, well, systemic racism is an English concept. So so it doesn't apply to Quebec. So whenever people feel like something is said in English, it automatically you will have some part of the population, right? Not everybody, obviously, but some part of the population who use it as a way to counter that concept. Just like uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, because it's a movement that started in the U.S., people will try to say it's a U.S. problem, it's not our problem. And in a way, that's not necessarily very different than what other Canadians are doing, right? When there's an American problem saying, no, Canada is distinct, so so what's going on in the, in the U.S. is not necessarily our issue. So yes, there is this kind of like differentiation uh, tactics I'd say, that are that are playing out. Uh, but so it makes it more complicated. And I'd say that when you are here as a woman of color or as a people who are trying to build, you know, more inclusive societies or trying to fight racism here, you're always fighting two fronts. You're fighting the, the misunderstanding and trying to build larger awareness in the general public in Quebec. But also whenever people, especially in Toronto media, are trying to be, you know, what the hell, why is Quebec so racist? It actually makes my job more difficult. How so? Uh, because it triggers those knee-jerk reflex. Uh, and then people become defensive and then people, uh, you know, want to reply to those, to those Torontonians or whatever. And, um, it becomes a fight basically about Quebec and English. And, uh, it does not become a fight about, about our, our human rights. And it's so complicated sometimes. It feels like, um, the way that Canadian media play out, it's a endless hockey game between the Canadian Habs and the Maple Leafs. <laughs> and people of color in Quebec are basically the, are, we are, we are the puck. We're not even players. We are the puck. And it's just two different kind of white people 
you know, trying to argue which kind of white people is the best. And personally, I'm not interested in that debate. And so that's sometimes why I'm kind of not necessarily, uh, you know, I'm being careful in the way that you're asking some of your questions because I know how unhelpful that debate is. And I'm personally not interested in having conversations as we were having back in the plantation of like, who is the best master? No, I'm trying to be free, you know? <laughs> so, so I'm not interested in trying to see who, which kind of dominant society is, is the most flawless because I'm also very cognizant of how sometimes people want to know more about the problems that are happening in Quebec in a way to, you know, divert the attention or not pay attention to what's going on locally in Ontario. And I don't want to be, you know, that pawn um, that's going to talk about exotic racism uh, in Quebec for you to, you know, better be able to ignore uh, what's going on in Toronto or what's going on in the prairies. I know this country too well, and I know how this plays out as well. Oh my God, that's so good. That's so devastating <laughs> and true and uh, and so implicating of me. <laughs> it's it's so comfortable. Like for it, 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 it just all clicked. Everything you said is so true. It's, it's so comfortable that the position for me to point a finger and then uh, to to kind of click into established roles. Fuck you, Jesse. You're not going to tell me from Toronto that you're more racist. And then it just uh, the conversation is just. Uh, it's just taken completely away from the people who it matters to most. Uh, you're the puck. Oh my God. I'm aware that, that trends like, you know, the me too movement brought to uh, media circles in New York, um, a list that was circulating called the shitty media men list where women were sharing the names of, of men to avoid and men who were accused of being predators uh, and sexual uh, misconduct in various ways. And right. there, there is uh, more recently a Quebec version, the, excuse my pronunciation, Dissonom list, a uh, similar list. I, uh, I had a look at it. It's a long list. And, uh, I can't say I was shocked by that. I didn't recognize a lot of the names and it was one of those frequent reminders of just how there is just a complete distinct and uh, robust ecosystem of celebrities, musicians, media personalities that I I'm blind to. How did this kind of episode within the media sphere in Quebec play out from your perspective? Like many other things in Quebec, it plays out at the intersection of what's going on in North America and what's going on in France, um, in France as well. It's not necessarily called the Me Too movement, but you've had a very uh, strong movement in the last years uh, of uh, people denouncing uh, celebrities. And there's a whole, there's a lot of scandals that have been happening, uh, happening there. Um, and also even before the Me Too movement, sometimes we don't remember, but the whole giant gumishy thing and the being raped, not reported hashtag that was there before Me Too. And that started a conversation. Conversation in in in, um, in in Toronto, but that was that hashtag was also translated uh, "agression non dénoncée," and that that also sparked a conversation uh, on social media. Then Me Too happened, mm -hmm. started a whole bunch of conversation. Uh, Gilbert Rozon, for example, who's the founder of Just pour Rire, Just for Last Festival, uh, fell uh, in that movement, and a lot of it prompted a, a, a very big conversation in the comedian. Uh, scene on uh, Quebec, which is which is a lot bigger than people can imagine. Um, and then this summer, um, as people were focusing on Black Lives Matter in June, then in July, what you had is another wave, uh, basically a second wave of Me Too, where people on Instagram accounts, anonymous Insta Instagram pages, started to post anonymous uh, testimonials of women 
speaking against some some men. Some of that it started with tattoo artists and you know people who are not necessarily famous, and then it became uh, about big household names. And once again, you have the media industry who's trying to. Um, I guess react to this and trying to figure out ways to uh, represent wokeness or to you know show virtue. Uh, speaking, say, you know, basically you have agencies saying they will not be associated with artists anymore, which I don't know which problem it solves, uh, but it clears the name of the agency in some ways. And you have uh, shows being pulled out of the air because they are involving people who have been accused, and so it's been a, a kind of a shitstorm actually in the last in the since the summer, and it's very much focused on the star system here, which is um, which is uh, is very unique uh, bubble because of French, basically French television. Um, you know, be, people being only speaking French makes a, I guess, a captive audience for, for French, uh, for French TV channels, actually, which is, uh, which, which makes Quebec television actually have a lot more higher ratings than Canadian televisions because English Canadians can listen to American TV a lot, uh, too easy, I guess, for, for Canadian productions to take off the way they do in Quebec, uh, relatively speaking. By, by an order of magnitude, uh, I mean, you know, the, the the role that Canadian English television plays in the cultural life of English speaking Canadians is like it's a, it's a little footnote afterthought to our American consumption. Yes. But the boomers have to go away eventually, uh, and you know I, I I I note that within the Quebec media that the, there are there's a young generation that is you know willing to like leave their good jobs at Journal de Montreal. Um, because they're tired of having to explain at parties that they work for the same paper that, uh, that publishes Martineau and, uh, th this malaise as, uh, your colleagues and other newspapers have described it, 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 it can't last forever. What comes next in Quebec or am I wrong? Are they going to cling on for, for forever? Th those who will not hear this and will not change. Um, and maybe have reason to, they, 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 they have created a society that's distinct and that serves them and that, and that privileges them. Uh, maybe they've got something to protect, but they, they, can they hold on to it forever? What happens next? Well, yeah, of course you, when you're, when you're trying to describe the Quebec media environment like that, we're always going to make, you know, generalization. So the reality is more nuanced than that, but it's really important to understand that, that yes, you have a. It's a small market, basically, and, and Quebecor, uh, which actually used to own uh, Sun Media for a while, uh, uh, is a very big chunk of the market, and that plays a role. And Quebecor is uh, owned by the former uh, leader of the Parti Québécois, Pierre-Carl Pelado, and so there's a very strong ideological band there, just like there is in some ways as well in La Presse and in Le Devoir. All of the newspaper has their own uh, ideological kind of band. Um, but it's hard for people who don't identify with you know, any of those answers to find a home and uh, to have a voice. And regardless of where... Uh, the, the movements or, or the media, one thing that Radio Canada included, one thing that all of them have in common is that they are absolutely not representative of the, the, the Quebec population and definitely not the Montreal population, right? You have the most uh, popular radio uh, show, uh, radio station in Montreal, uh, 98.5. 
I don't know that they have actually any uh, person of color as a mm -hmm. host or if it, if it, it is most, it's, it's behind 1% of the, but, and while Montreal is one third racialized, right? And so basically people are, are not visible at all. And what happens is you have, um, sometimes a new generation of journalists who are just like exactly like actually in the rest of the country, they, they try to come in as interns and whatnot. And then they see that the, the, the newsroom culture is not necessarily, um, friendly let's put it this way uh, there are some frustrations or misunderstandings and so people leave people are trying to start their own media but there's definitely a sense of you know having a generation that doesn't feel themselves represented not only in media but also you know television in the arts and cultures in in the movies and while that's a problem everywhere i'd say specifically what it means in, in quebec is if for example you have more diversity in uh, english media and people my generation are more bilingual what it means is that you have a generation that will actually listen to english tv Uh, although they're, you know, the children of Bill 101 and you've tried to do everything you can to to uh, make that generation francophone, people will identify more with the material that's out there provided to them in English. And so even if you want Quebec to go on as a French as a French uh, speaking society, uh, if you cannot create content that actually looks like your population, you're, you're you might end up losing a generation that will never sacrifice You know, having I, I will be black, you know, no regard regardless, no matter what. And if there's no space for me to see myself in black uh, as black in Quebec um, or in French, then people like myself are, are more likely to to actually go consume content somewhere else. And that that's definitely a problem if you if you understand also the the broader you know disequilibrium that exists in this continent in terms of language and culture for sure. And to make content for other places, I mean, with with the declining birth rate after Catholicism, the idea was that it was going to be French-speaking Haitians and Lebanese. The regeneration was supposed to come of, of the culture from people like you, but, but that, would, that would only be possible if, if room could be made and, and if, it, if it could have evolved to include. Yes. And then you realize what are the Francophone speaking country? There's Haiti, there's, but also there's Senegal and, you know, Algeria and Tunisia mm -hmm. and Morocco. All, all of these places are Muslim. <laughs> and then if you don't want to have, you know, if you have, there's some sort of, some sort of Islamophobia that's being peddled by some, um, pundits since the basically 9-11. Uh, then you end up creating this wedge between people who were brought to Quebec because they're francophone, and then you tell them that they can never be Quebecois because of some other aspect of their identity. Is there a burgeoning independent media scene? Are, are, are people of color within French-speaking Canada making media and news for each other? Uh, I, I, I see these French podcasts popping up and beating uh, English language podcasts on the charts all the time, uh, but my fluency with who's making this stuff and... Uh, whether there's something new happening is uh, pretty low. There's always really interesting stuff happening in podcasts because it's everybody and their mama can start a podcast in mm -hmm. some ways. <laughs> Not good quality, but they can. Uh, and so so it's accessible. Um, there's also... There's also lots going on on, uh, you know, people doing YouTube channel or, 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 or Facebook videos. Uh, but to have, you know, non, uh, traditional media being established itself, uh, it's, it's taking a little bit more time. It's part of it is because the market is so small, but, but it, but it is happening for sure. It's also only a matter of time. Once again, like you have this generation who's not seeing itself being represented in French and it's only a matter of time before it's some, something else. Either they're going to adapt 
adapt or the system is not going to be able to sustain themselves. Uh, and even in terms of, and I hate to be speaking like that because it should be just a matter of trying to do the right thing. But even from a business standpoint, uh, if you are looking like a smaller and smaller proportion of what the Montreal population is, your actual market is shrinking. So you need to adapt uh, or, uh, you know, your, your viewers or your readers are not going to get any younger. I think adapt or die is the blunt phrase you were avoiding there. Yeah, yeah, because it's a it's a challenging environment for the media, even regardless of that situation, right? How is what is it like to be you in this? <laughs> <laughs> like, what are your mentions like, and 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 what's what what kind of response do you get for trying to navigate these complexities in in, in your writing in a really raucous and engaged? Um, media ecosystem, media conversation, right. such as Quebec. Right. Um, when I write in French, um, I'm often told by trolls, not everybody, obviously, but by trolls, and there's a lot of trolls, um, that uh, if I'm trying to address issues of either something about race or trying to you know, rectify the dead angles around colonization, if I say that French Canadians were actually settlers and not colonized people, uh, things like that, then I'm I'm being told that uh, it's because I don't know Quebec or uh, that I don't understand their history. Obviously, the fact that they could be my cousins is erased. So there's that. Um, and interestingly enough, uh, because I used to live in Toronto, I'm being accused of being uh, uh, an Anglophone and being accused of being uh, someone who's from Ontario, who's spying on Quebec. I don't know what. So there's also, I'm, I'm too close to you, Jesse. Oh. Libelous. Yes, yeah. I know. Like I've been, I've been, sp I spent too much time in Ontario, so I'm not actually a Quebecois anymore. I don't know if you knew, but yeah. And so there's that. And then on the other side, what I'm doing with you right now is actually, you know, trying to do a crash course of here's actually what Quebecois culture is. And here is the way that, you know, um, although there is racism like everywhere, here's how it plays out. And here is how here's uh, a summary of the other side of the debate. And so, so yeah, it's interesting how like I'm always accused of being a Quebec basher myself. And then because I'm playing, you know, I'm both in Quebec media and, and somewhat as well in Anglophone uh, Canadian media, I'm, I'm being a, a kind of a diplomat on the other side. So, so yes, I guess I can be seen as one thing in the, in the other. And it makes my life interesting if I see that both, I guess, you know, uh, the Orange Lodge, uh, Johnny McDonald fans attack me, uh, and also like ethnic nationalist, uh, xenophobic Quebecois also attack me. If I'm being attacked on both sides, I know that I'm, I'm where I'm supposed to stand. <laughs> um. <laughs> because both, because, because both are wrong. It's always a sideshow that's going on. And, and we, if we need to focus really on, on the human rights, uh, issues in this country, we cannot let ourselves be derailed by this competition. It's never going to end. If everybody's angry with you, you know you're doing your job. Yeah, well, not angry, but if uh, yeah, it's like you need to. I need to be trolled both in French and in English, then I know I'm doing my job right. Yeah. No, we 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 have some things in common, Emily Nicola. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. It's been a ch pleasure chatting with you too, Jesse. That is your Canada land. If you like this show, you can get it ad-free twice a week for five bucks Canadian a month. Just go to canadalandshow.com slash join, or just click on the link in the show notes. You can email me 
at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read them all. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand. Our website is canadalandshow.com. And if you haven't yet, go there to sign up for our newsletter. You'll get everything that we have reported and published this week summarized for you, plus recommendations and picks and funny shit from our staff. Check it out. The senior producer of this episode is Rosalind Kufour. Additional production by Gabe Knox. Our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like this show, please support it. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures, and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A, Malibu.com, code GLOW.